Hello and welcome to the Doc Arena podcast in association with Film Ireland. My name is Ross Whitaker, and every fortnight I want to dig deeply into the motivations of documentary filmmakers. How do they choose their subject material and what approaches and strategies do they employ to fund, craft and distribute their work? In this episode, I speak to Johnny Gogan about his film Groundswell, which is widely available on demand in Ireland and the UK from April 30th across numerous virtual cinemas, as well as on Johnny's website, banditfilms.ie. The film revisits the community campaigns in Northwest Ireland to prevent the fracking of gas, an activity that could have disastrous consequences for the local environment. The campaign was a testament to the power that organized local opposition can have even in the face of powerful corporate interests. The director Johnny Gogan lives in the area and in this film he takes a very personal and sensitive approach to the story. Here's the trailer for Groundswell. billion euro of potential tax revenue against the fears about possible contamination of the water supply. We're looking at an area that we concentrate on in the north part of Leitrim uh, and south Fermanagh and the very western edge of Cavan. I'm telling you, they're using you. You hear the plan. They're going to they're gonna junk your country up. They are using you, and you are going to be the suckers on the end of the line here. A politician somewhere talked about Leitrim, that we needed to have sacrifice zones. This is going on in 15 countries right now. Uh, the United States alone this year, there'll be 15,000 horizontal, multi-stage fractured wells drilled for gas. So, They're coming in now. They're so there must be a frack going on oh, somewhere. Yeah, it's being fracked right now, yeah. I heard a lot of heavy traffic on the road. And I looked out and I could see lorries and police jeeps and other vehicles. And I thought, my God. This is a very toxic industry coming into, um, it would be like fracking a fractured community. We know when crunch comes to it, Who's going to stand on that road in Leitrim and stop them physically? Who's going to do it? The top table line, right enough. What scared me the most about Carrick was I thought that that was going to happen to us. Johnny, thanks a million for joining the podcast. Would you mind starting by introducing the film and, and telling me how you decided to make the film? Yeah, great to be here, Ross. Um, so I had the idea to make the film only about 18 months ago. Uh, but the story um, that we're telling starts, well, more or less exactly 10 years ago. Um, that time I was already making films, um, but I was also running a mobile cinema. And, and um, that cinema used to show all kinds of films, um, mainly world cinema films. And um, I had learned about fracking from my sister who lives in Pennsylvania. And Pennsylvania is um, at the core of, of um, fracking, the fracking industry in the US. But also it was uh, where the American filmmaker Josh Fox uh, comes from and um, where he starts his film called Gasland, which tells the story of fracking in America. So my sister Barbara told me about that film uh, so in tw early 2011, when this area where I live here in Leitrim and across the border 
in Fermanagh were licensed for exploration for shale gas. And you can only get shale gas out of the ground using fracking. I decided to uh, get the mobile cinema on the road in the licensed area to show Josh Fox's film Gasland. And that was really how people here first learned about fracking because there was actually very little research uh, available on the effects of fracking. So uh, Josh Fox's film is an extraordinary testament and, and it was a great rallying point for people to get involved in the campaign here. You mentioned Gasland and, and obviously that was a film that was incredibly successful at that time. And in a way, this is a companion piece to it and it's very different from it. What was your approach to this film and, and why did you decide to do it in the end a few years after, I suppose, the story had taken place? I mean, to my mind, it looks like it's a, a really important document of what happened. And maybe that was part of the reason you decided to do it. Yes, it, it was. And I think at the end of the campaign in 2017, we were all really exhausted and we wanted to move on with our lives. And um, I I think that two things happened, which are alluded to in the, in the film, um, towards the end of the film. One was uh, the climate emergency was more or less declared in uh, 2018, 2019. So awareness of climate change and the threat that it represents really went up a whole notch. I mean, we'd been aware of it for 30 to 40 years, people involved in the, in the environmental movement. And then uh, started the Fridays for Future, um, which had traction here um, among uh, school kids here, including um, in, in Leitrim. And then the other thing was that we learned that while Ireland had banned fracking, uh, that there was a plan afoot to make Ireland um, a hub for the importation of fracked gas from Pennsylvania and a redistribution point into Europe for this gas. So the hypocrisy of Ireland having banned fracking uh, and that we were now looking at importing it. And I had just finished a film. I'd finished Prisoners of the Moon, so I was thinking, what next? And I realized I'd shot quite a lot during those years of the, the six years of the campaign. And I realized other people had, had shot quite a bit as well. So I had an opening there. I couldn't find anyone to back the film, but I just decided uh, I had the wherewithal to, um, to, to make it. And um, I thought it could be quite an affirmative story for people to look at uh, in the face of the, the kind of the mammoth challenge of climate change, that here was a small community who had been faced with kind of the existential threat, if you like, that everybody was now being faced with. And here was how we had addressed it in a creative way and in a politically astute way. It could have been a cautionary tale, but it's a cautionary tale that ends up not being one, if you know what I mean, because two, two things that really stood out for me. One was that in 2011, when this all kind of came to kind of uh, public notice, it was a time when Ireland was bankrupt and there was a feeling of, you know, well, anything we can do to get ourselves back on our feet, we should do it. And without necessarily considering the long-term significance or ramifications of that. And I thought that was kind of something to keep that we will, we should always keep in mind regardless of the time uh, and something worth noting from this film. And, and the second thing was the idea of a sacrifice zone that, you know, for maybe for 
the rest of the country to prosper, you have to give up certain things in, in, in certain areas. But you realize, of course, that it's all part of an ecosystem that's interconnected. So, you know, those two things were, amongst others, real food for thought that come out of the film. And, and it, I think it means that anyone that sees this can take that forward into whatever comes down the line. Yeah, and it's, um, I mean, I hadn't heard that term sacrifice so until I'm standing on the mountain with Eddie Mitchell and uh, he says it to me as we're recording the interview with him and I was like, yeah, that's that's exactly um, what we were being lined up for. And it's one of the things when you, you live here is that you do feel very far from, it's only three hours drive, but you feel far from an experiential point of view from the capital, from Dublin, where I had lived uh, before. But one of the things as well, and you're exactly right about um, 2011, where we were at, one of the things I kind of noticed about living here is that um, people in some ways didn't, haven't known how to resist and how to find the way to resist um, and dealing with the, the fact that this is quite a marginal place. It is another marginal community in Ireland. And um, for me, it was kind of a moment where, because it, I've been involved in politics, I, I had stood for the Green Party um, very unsuccessfully in that 2011 election, if people remember it, it as a wipeout for Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael. So I was kind of um, uh, in, in a situation that where I could have just kind of buried my head under the blanket uh, or um, realize, well, actually, you know, I was in a good position to do something because I knew about um, um, activist politics, as many people, other people living here did as well. So it was a chance to kind of go about um, looking at the issue with the kind of new politics, because I also make the point in the film that what had happened to the people in Mayo was that they had been more or less abandoned by the political system, by politicians of every hue. And that first showing of Gaslands at the Mayflower Ballroom in Drumshambo had 100 people in the cinema. And I would say a quarter of them were political representatives. We had done everything to make sure that our political representatives were going to be informed and were going to be involved in this issue rather than we were not going to allow them to go missing, which is what happened in Corrib. So there was a kind of a unique achievement of this campaign, a very grassroots-based campaign, but actually a campaign that got uh, elected representatives about whom people can be very cynical. People are very cynical about politics in this country for, you know, for understandable reasons. But, you know, we fashioned something that was very original and unique to, 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 to this uh, community. And that was one of the achievements of the campaign. One of the things I think that documentary makers worry about is in many cases, they're drawn to to making these films because they hope that they can make some kind of difference. And, and, and oftentimes you wonder the extent to which they can. But the fact that Gasland was in cinemas and available around this time was actually kind of a godsend to um, what the local community required in terms of something that could show very clearly and movingly and powerfully uh, the dangers of, of what was coming onto their doorstep. 
Yeah, well, I don't, don't think Gasland was actually going to be released here. I'm pretty sure it wasn't. We became the, the distributor of the film in Ireland, at Cinema Northwest, as, as, as the organization then, which ran the mobile cinema. So it was a, a, a it was a kind of a godsend to the film as well, because it, it made it incredibly relevant. <laughs> there was a lot of bootleg copies, not from us, I hasten to add, but you know, we were the formal distributor of, of the of the film. But I mean, yes, I mean, what a what a success for for Josh Fox. But an interesting thing in, in a smaller way about our own film. And um, this week, um, on the back of the release of the, the film. A bunch of NGOs have come together here in Ireland, um, Friends of the Earth, um, Future Proof Clare, um, the Human Rights Clinic, uh, Human Rights Centre in Galway, and uh, the Love Leitrim, the group I'm involved with here, have, are pushing now for Ireland to sponsor a resolution at the United Nations for, to push for the global ban, a global ban on fracking. And so the film, this film is in some ways proving as a kind of a vehicle, if you like, for kind of a wider awareness uh, building around that issue. So um, we learned a lot from Gasland and more than just about fracking, I suppose. One other thing that I really noticed in the film was a kind of silence on the other side of the argument, you know, the kind of the, the, the bogeyman that sort of stays in the shadows. And it feels like that's quite a in a way successful PR strategy for these kinds of companies that they don't actually come out and say very much as they stay very much out of the spotlight and it's almost must be difficult for local campaigners to have something to cling on to in those situations. Yeah very much so it's a really good point because um, they have access to, to regulators and to public servants that you find it very difficult as uh, ordinary citizens to get and so there, there's always a sense that they're one step ahead of the um of the campaigners if you like but in many ways we uh staged a kind of preemptive strike if you like because they were hoping to get their initial licenses and very quickly move uh, their licenses on to the next stage which would have been and getting uh, the permission to drill, to, to put in exploration drills. But before they could get to that point, the campaign was already up and running and um, was already very vocal. Now, there were issues about the campaign, um, which maybe we can talk about, because I think that's probably one of the things we deal with later on in the film. But we really did get in early and um, and if you like, we prevented the company from uh, making the weather, if you like, from, from making the running. Um, that was what that was definitely something that caught them, caught them on the hop. Yeah, one of the things you're talking about there is, I suppose, the difficulties of local communities to know um, how to fight these bodies uh, and maybe the differences in opinions within those communities, but also from people outside of those communities who also feel like they're stakeholders in it. We're talking about the River Shannon, which runs, you know, is a huge uh, arterial water supply throughout Ireland. So you have a lot of different opinions. You yourself, as you say, you, you know, were a member of the Green Party and, and you don't hide in any way, I suppose, where you were coming from on it. But it really does highlight the difficulties of bringing people together to 
kind of fight these kind of battles in a way that makes a difference and is unified? Yeah, it's quite, um, uh, it is complicated. And to give you a sense of what it was like in those early months, you're always risking implosion, you know, because, um, and it's Nuala McNulty, uh, who's one of the participants in, in, in the story, in the film, says, you know, uh, that, that she was asked by a very sage person, have you got over the anger yet? And, um, but there was, so there was a lot of anger about it. And anger is, can be a very destructive emotion. Can, it really saps people's energies, but it also alienates other people. And people were being alienated. And so there was a kind of a two phases to that early stage, which is the kind of the initial intensity of, you know, trying to kind of get a grip on what was happening and then thinking, we were not going to be able to continue uh, operating in this way. And that coincided with the company clarifying where it wanted to locate its, its activities, which is right up against the border in Leitrim and, and Cavan and Fermanagh. So they had focused um, where it was that they wanted to concentrate in, in a 160 square mile area. And that also coincided with the campaign refocusing itself and myself and a bunch of other people forming a group um, which was going to attempt something that hadn't really been attempted before, which was the notion of positive campaigning. So we were not, uh, the first word on our lips was not going to be no, it was going to be yes. Yes, we are in favor of what we already have. Yes, we really uh, love the landscape in which we're living. Yes, there is a strong community here, etc. So, so we were essentially going to celebrate what we already had. And in that process, deal with two things. Firstly, people don't like campaigning most of the time. They don't like joining protests that isn't in their nature, and certainly in rural areas. And secondly, there wasn't a clear manifestation on the ground of what the company was about. They didn't have boots on the ground. They didn't have a drill going on. They clearly had plans to. So by us in taking this celebratory approach, um, it meant that we could build something that was around developing the community, responding to the crash, actually, because people were really, uh, the communities here were on their knees because of the crash. And um, this was a very affirmative thing that wasn't just about fracking. It was about the community. And that worked. That approach worked. And were elements like that a big motivation for you in deciding to make this film a little bit after the fact in that you could reflect on those points as being important from a position further along um you know further along your own personal timeline and you could say okay these are things that i i feel like i need to um capture these thoughts these reflections before time has passed too far and they become kind of figments of, of another time. Yeah, and I don't do kind of biographical film that easy. I've done it a couple of times where I've been on, like I did a film about my grandfather back about 10 years ago, and so I'm on the screen for that, but I tend not to take that approach. So I tend to be more about the issues. So I kind of did need that kind of distance from the, 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 the subject and from the events, if you like, in order to kind of regain some kind of objective 
uh, view of events and to in some ways to separate myself from those events, even though I was very involved in them. Um, and I think that kind of distance is always good. Um, and if I tried to make the film too quickly, I think there would have been certain areas that were, were just un undeveloped. And I mean, even, um, the, you know, the actual, as you know, in documentary, Ross, you've done, done so many yourself, and um, you're actually researching as you're making the film as well. And that's one of the lovely things about documentary, you're discovering the film rather than just kind of sitting down and doing a kind of a step one to five exercise of, and um, so there were things, I also thought I just didn't have enough footage because I had, um, I had been going through those six years, not really recording very much. I'd done about four events where I had recorded things. And one of the key events happens in the Rainbow Ballroom in, um, Glen Farn, here right on the border of Leitrim and Fermanagh. And uh, I realized I'd run out of tape um, at a very critical point in the meeting. So it kind of was one of those demoralizing things. I actually missed what was actually a very explosive part of the meeting. And, um, but it took me months to actually find the other person who had been filming uh, at that event who was turned out was an academic who was traveling around Ireland. He's based in, in, um, in the States. And um, I tracked him down and um, he said, yeah, I've got that footage. And uh, so it was like things were really taking shape in front of my eyes rather than kind of being involved in something that was kind of very retrospective, if you like. In a way, it must have been an interesting process to kind of revisit footage from a few years ago and also to try and start compiling a body of material that you could use for the edit. How did you go about that both in a, in a research way, but then in how did you start to organize your thoughts towards making a film with a narrative structure? Yeah, well, I was pretty clear about the opening, obviously, um, as I described uh, um, there. And I knew there was going to be, because you, I, I knew I was going to go into, say, the, the positive campaigning aspects. And I also did not want to steer away from the internal conflict, because I think that was something that was, was very pervasive. It, as Eddie Mitchell says in the film, that, when that seed of suspicion was there right through six years of the campaign where people were because you know, there were 20 groups involved in, in the campaign in, in total so you know there was a degree of, of um, rivalry and tension but as you know as a filmmaker that's um that's interesting for an audience to see for for campaigners it's just so painful they don't want to go back or revisit that but um um and but the ending i didn't know how that was going to go because the events of the ending hadn't happened when I started to make the film about 18 months ago. And that has to do with um, Eddie Mitchell uh, approaching me just this time last year, uh, late February 2020, and saying to me, Johnny, I'm going off to Pennsylvania and I'm going to New York uh, to meet up with some campaigners. Um, why don't you come? And um, so that opened up. I was never sure that I was going to be able to go to Pennsylvania as part of the filming. 
and Eddie's decision motivated me to 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 um to, to follow him to the states for that week-long trip to the states which turned out to be in the first week of march last year and we finished filming in new york on the 10th of march and if people i think that date is probably um pretty clear in people's memory it's essentially was the beginning of the first lockdown and if we delayed even a week before going, we probably wouldn't have been able to travel to the States. So it was incredibly fortuitous that, that Eddie suggested it when we did. And, and we, we just jumped at it and uh, myself and Niall Flynn flew over with him. And so there's some key, uh, key scenes, if you like, um, for the closing of the, of the documentary are, are filmed in uh, New York. And uh, we were actually supposed to interview Mark Ruffalo on March the 10th, and because of the emergency, the COVID emergency, um, we had to cancel. So that's hence we interviewed him by by Zoom. First, to comment on the ending, it does really bring the thoughts together in the end and place them in a context of of what continues to happen. So it doesn't place a full stop at the end of the film, but makes you reflect on this being one in a number of important battles or debates that are shaping our environment and our society so i thought it, it ended very strongly going back to how you're bringing the film together there are and many many interviews and they take place in many many places including post offices dance halls i believe one maybe at some kind of music festival <laughs> and the, the music as well it, it it kind of made me feel like that this film was almost like a bit of a, an odyssey you know and, and almost like it has and the music that you choose as well it feels quite country in a way and, and it just feels from a genre point of view quite different from a lot of these campaigning films which really lean into the into the thriller genre um, and I wonder how how conscious you were of trying to make something that was a little bit more litrum perhaps and stylistically different from those kinds of films yeah because I think it's more personal the approach that we take because I suppose I, I know a lot of the people in the film and um, and yes it is a, a somewhat of an odyssey um, but the geography is, is actually um, I sometimes we live in quite a tight community here but the landscape doesn't uh, is so expansive if you like so it's to, to catch the intimacy but also the expansiveness um, of the landscape that was essentially very prone and open to, to the threat of, of becoming a, a fracking field and a, a big gas development with 3,000 wells planned on it. So it was important to, to celebrate the people, but also to show the landscape as a character, if you like, in, in the story. Yeah, and, and just speaking a little bit more to that feeling that's in it, which is very personal and I don't know why I'm focusing on this, but I've seen a lot of films recently that are kind of in these, this kind of campaigning mode. I mean, one that's around at the moment is The Dissident, which was by Brian Fogel, who also made a, a film about doping previously. And, and these films seem to always want to be pushed into drama genres. And this feels much, uh, the pacing of this film is, is quite different. It, it feels very Irish in a way and very localized in a way, but in in a way that reflects its surroundings. Is that something that you were very conscious of? Because you could have done it differently. You know, you could have, you know, done these kind of 
you know, highly lit retrospective interviews and so on, but you chose not to. And I'm, I'm kind of curious about uh, taking that approach. And, and I think it makes for quite a unique feeling. Yeah, the, the, I suppose in the first half an hour, for example, um, and I think it was the thing that we started um, the, the story with. There was an idea that um, some of the people involved in Love Leitrim had was to, to put this installation up in the mountain um, above Manor Hamilton, which was something that had been was annually put up in the mountain coming up to Christmas time. And um, when I heard that, I thought that is a perfect way to ca actually capture a lot of the characters and the story, the landscape and also the spirit of, of the of the campaign if you like so we we set off up the mountain on this kind of it feels a bit like a combination between a pilgrimage and an active service unit because uh, uh the the people going up the mountain are ca carrying equipment and you think you know where is this going to and it, it was a, a really for me a very good filmic way of um of telling the story so that we weren't going to be depending on sitting people down um, but we were going to be showing them in the landscape that they're actually trying to protect. It's an interesting one because when we think of films like The Pipe in Carob and we think of The Lonely Battle of Thomas Reed and we think of, of, of this particular campaign, it goes to show that a lot of the front lines uh, of Irish integrity in terms of our environment and also the decisions that are made are, are happening not in the corridors of power in Dublin, but on the, the front lines can be out in the middle of a field or in the sea. And um, it, it's something that I really reflected on watching your film was that's something that's very, very difficult to keep an eye on. And you are relying on local people to do these things. And, and maybe this film and others like it can show people in communities that their voices uh, can be important forces to ensure that things that shouldn't happen don't happen. Yeah, I, I think that's that's right. And um, I mean, just two things on that is I grew up in a country that was really cynical about politics, about politicians and um, the political system that we had was very, very narrow in its aperture, if you like. So the world of arts and culture and community um, were very important in bringing about the kind of changes that we've seen in Ireland in the past really going back to the 90s like we've witnessed a big sea change in irish life um since the since the 1990s and and the political system i think has has improved serves us better now than it certainly did um before then there was there was a, such an air of corruption around it so there was kind of beholden on people to re if they wanted to affect change was to kind of take the take back the power if you like and so i kind of grew up with that and then the second thing is you know i was obviously going to see a huge transition because of the the challenge of climate change and i strongly believe that that will not happen or it certainly won't happen in a just way unless at a community level people do organize through whatever you know their existing organizations whether it's the tidy towns or the gaa and actually act on these issues at a local level um, if, if everything is going to be decided in a top-down way i think it will be very disempowering and i think it will be very demoralizing as well and you know we are look at the forest fires that we've experienced in the morns and in 
carry. I mean, th these are the effects of, of climate change. I strongly believe that. So climate change is affecting us at a local level. And we do need to therefore respond at a local level. And I think the film in its articulation of, of positive, the, the positives and what people can do to, to, to develop their communities um, in this new reality, um, you know, the film can help with that in a small way. Johnny, as we wrap up the conversation, can I ask you, you've been making films for, for quite a while at this stage. What piece of advice would you give to someone that's coming into making documentaries and um, that you feel, you know, may have been a benefit to you or that you could pass on? Sure. Well, as you probably know, I, I make fiction films and I, I do documentary as well. And I actually uh, started making fiction first. And uh, I am. Um, I remember uh, working with Gary Keane, who's a fantastic documentary uh, maker, say, for example, of Gaza. And uh, he's also a great DOP, and he was the DOP in the first documentary I worked on. And um, um, we were in this situation in, the, in an office in Connemara, and um, the cameras were set. We were doing a bit of lighting, and uh, the people who were there to film were, were standing um, stock still. And, um, and Gary leaned over to me and said, says, Johnny, you know, it's a bit like drama. And sometimes you have to be kind of uh, give people an idea of what you think that they might be doing, you know? So it was, so it was a shock to me. And I realized why I hadn't got involved in documentaries sooner because there is an element of, you know, you are shaping the story as you're making it. You are um, part of the, the, the making of the story. And, um, but, you know, seriously, I, I think, um, there's fantastic journalism um, out there, you know, formal journalism through newspapers has probably been curtailed because of the shift online, but there's great, there's just great um, access to information now. There's so many things that we can make films about that we wouldn't have known about um, before. And um, also technology, like the documentaries I've made in the, in the last, 10 years have largely been made with myself shooting with maybe a second, someone shooting second camera or recording sound. And so there's a great kind of um, potential there without having too much money to, um, to get out there and, and tell stories and, and to bear witness to what's happening around us. Very good. And I just wanted to wish you best of luck with the release. It's being released in Ireland this week. Um, across a few of the virtual theatres. Unfortunately, we won't be having face-to-face -face screenings yet. Um, what are your hopes for the, the film over the next while? Yeah, well, it's been, um, it's already on release in the UK um, through a distributor called Johnny Tull, who's done a fantastic job. And um, so he's using the Modern Films platform and the Indie Films platforms, and has got over 20 cinemas involved in, in, um, in Britain. Um, showing the film. So that for me is kind of um, is you know, a bit of a breakthrough for a film that didn't have any finance from, from any production finance from any, any um, source. I think it will also have a life. One of the things I've done, Ross, as well in the last year is that I've been um, putting my own films on my own platform on, through banditfilms.ie um, and just taking a bit more uh, responsibility for making sure that my own work is getting out there using using Vimeo and um, and that's working quite quite well for me 
And um, I think having gone out in um, VOD now, we do have interest from an aggregator uh, based in the UK to who'd roll it out onto the you know the likes of iTunes and uh, Amazon, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And and hopefully some broadcaster interest from Ireland. You know, um, I think it's uh, it's been difficult to to engage with broadcasters here, but I think it's a film that people will want to see. But as you know, when you do this type of theatrical release, then you know the publicity around it tends to stir the interest of, of broadcasters. Yeah, it's it's still the best way of getting the word out, isn't it? And it's interesting you mentioned there putting the films on your own platform and also the different ways in which films can make their ways to audiences because as well as the equipment um, that you mentioned that can make the actual production of the documentaries easier, I don't think it's the case anymore that we have to rely on traditional distribution in the same way. And um, even if you know, if you make a film for a very low budget, you can also put a film out for, for quite a low budget compared to before. And I think that's something that's important for filmmakers to kind of get their hands dirty with. Um, it, it can be something that people don't want to because they think I'll make this film and someone will distribute it for me. But as you mentioned, um, there's so much you can do for yourself in that regard also. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I should say, finally, I'm really lucky. I've got great collaborators here. When you mentioned the music, uh, Steve Wickham, he did a fantastic job with, uh, on the music and I think it's our fourth film working together on a, my editor, Patrick O'Rourke, um, who lives across the fields from me here in, in, in Leitrim. So I'm really lucky to have that collaboration and uh, from Niall Flynn, who shot the film with me. Very good. Thanks a million, Johnny, and best of luck with it. Thanks, Ross. Appreciate it. Thanks again to Johnny for taking part in the interview. His film Groundswell is widely available on video on demand from April 30th, as well as on Johnny's own website, banditfilms.ie. Thanks to Stephen Galvin and Phil Marlin for supporting the podcast, and to film composer Michael Fleming for kindly allowing me to steal his music. You can find more of it at michaelflemingmusic.com. And thanks to you for listening.